That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show Is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, JDK Winnekin. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another episode of This Show is All About You. How many shows can you say are out there that are all about you? Well, you can say it about this one because that's the title of it. And certainly it's really about all the things that we have in common. So it's about me. It's about you. It's about those things that connect us. Uh, And every every week for an hour, we dig into topics that uh, oftentimes maybe we debate more on the surface rather than really dig into, all with a the goal of taking a good look at ourselves and uh, maybe hopefully showing up better for ourselves and for other people uh, as a result. So thank you for taking the next hour to spend that with me. If you are listening live on Kixie Radio in Seattle, uh, thanks for doing so. Hope the traffic isn't too bad for you. And uh, if you're listening as a podcast, thank you so much for uh, subscribing, for leaving me a review. I really do appreciate it. And uh, please pass it on uh, to people that you know who might be interested. If you'd like to know more about me, you can check out my website, soon to be revamped. I'm very excited. Wordsbyjdk.com. You can also find me on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and you will find me there rather easily. Would love to chat with you about the show, about the topics we cover on the show, maybe some things you'd like me to talk about on the show. Bring it to me and let's see what we've got. Okay. Also, want to thank this show's longtime sponsor right here at the very beginning, Airway Science for Kids, which is a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities to underserved youth through the exploration of aerospace careers, of which there are hundreds out there. Uh, but they do so not just in a here's, a here's a way to find a job kind of way, but a way in which students get to better connect with themselves, learn self-advocacy, uh, learn how to navigate more effectively, Uh, in the world that we live in with the idea of better being able to connect to themselves, their families, and their communities. If you'd like to check out the amazing work that Airway Science for Kids does, check out their website, airsci, A-I-R-S-C-I, dot org. And you'll hear more about them during the show breaks a little bit later on. So uh, we are moving into March, and here where I live in the Pacific Northwest, uh, everybody is celebrating a bit of a milestone, and this is what happens when you live far in the north. Everybody here is celebrating now that for the first time in five and a half months, the sun is setting after 6 p.m., which means the good days are coming. In just a few months, uh, you'll be able to be running around outside, throwing a Frisbee at 10 o'clock at night. That's one of my favorite things about living in the Northwest. Uh, But there is sort of a sense of awakening and emerging uh, that is is coming on. And uh, because of that, moving into March, um, I'm going to talk a little bit today about um, one of the one of the things we do in March, and uh, many people know March is Women's History Month, and uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that today from a little bit of a different direction. Uh, but first, we're going to start out as we always do by taking a look back at uh, significant events in the week's news in a segment that I call "What in the World is Going On." 
If controlling these wrecked buildings and charred ruins is a victory for Russia, then it's among the hollowest. For seven long months, the Battle of Bakhmut has been a symbol of Ukraine's ability to outwit and outgun Russia's military and mercenary might. But it looks increasingly likely the besieged city is at its last stand, with the final residents in the area now leaving. We wanted to stay, but how can we, she says. It's time for us to go. Of course, that the latest development of what's going on in Ukraine, uh, the eastern city of Bakhmut, which is in the contested Donetsk region uh, that is occupied largely by Russian troops, uh, that city, which has been a major hub point for fighting um, and is a hub point for transit in and out of uh, that part of the, the country, has been now effectively circled by the Russians. And the Russians, though, have paid an enormous price to do this. While Ukrainian defenders held out for many months, as you heard in that clip, uh, finally, they have been surrounded. There is, it remains to be seen if those Ukrainian forces in the town will withdraw, uh, thus ceding a little bit more ground to Russia. But if you've paid any attention to the video from Bakhmut, um, it's, it's grim. There is not much of that city that is left standing, literally. Uh, it, it's become a microcosm of exactly how this war of attrition is playing out, where literally towns, villages, entire cities are being pulverized to the point where troops are fighting from building to building, not just town to town or street to street, uh, but building to building. And in some cases, it sounds like room to room in various buildings. And this is the type of warfare that has not been seen in this part of the world since World War II, when the Soviet Union was fighting against Nazi Germany in this part of the world, including in Ukraine. Things are so bad for uh, Russian troops that they are appealing on video their faces and voices disguised directly to Vladimir Putin asking for help uh, that so many of them were being killed in combat. In fact, there were some videos that made the rounds on social media and made it into the news uh, over the last week uh, that garnered a lot of attention. But now most military experts believe those soldiers in those videos are most likely dead uh, from where they are. So we're talking thousands of casualties just to take Bakhmut alone. And it's raising an open question is just how many Russians are going to die before this is over. And certainly, right alongside that, how many Ukrainians are going to die fighting uh, in this process whenever it ends. Uh, meanwhile, the United States has promised another $400 million in aid to Ukraine to continue to help them fight. And as the so-called season of mud, as it's called in Ukraine, begins to ease up with the coming of spring, uh, the fighting is only going to get worse. And so it remains to be seen what the Russians can do, having exhausted themselves to take Bakhmut. What ability will they have to absorb the coming Ukrainian counterpunch? Because it is coming. All right. And second story for the week, uh, a little closer to home, an anniversary, uh, an important anniversary being commemorated in Alabama over the weekend. Selma is a reckoning. The right to vote right to vote, to have your vote counted, is the threshold of democracy and liberty. With it, anything's possible. Without it, without that right, nothing is possible. And of course, President Biden speaking at the um, Edmund Pettus Bridge, which is in Selma, Alabama, the site of the so-called Bloody Sunday incident back March 7th, 1965, uh, commemorations happening all week. Part of the marches that happened uh, led by Martin Luther King Jr. and other, uh, other main uh, leaders of the civil rights movement, marching from Selma to Montgomery, the state capital of Alabama, back in 1965, to protest voting restrictions that were being put 
um, on black citizens in the state. Back then, uh, about 600 protesters crossed over the Edmund Pettus Bridge and were met on the far side by 80 Alabama state troopers that immediately took out billy clubs, guns, uh, tear gas, and in full view of national TV cameras uh, that recorded all of it uh, in all of its notorious uh, brutality, beat the protesters uh, in a number of ways for a very, very long time. And when it aired on the news that night, this was back then when footage didn't just get sent in seconds from one location to New York, had to be flown there. When it arrived at the ABC news studios, ABC interrupted a showing of the 1961 film Judgment at Nuremberg, which was making its uh, television debut. It was one of the most successful movies of the early 1960s. And that movie, you know, having viewers watching that and then suddenly being confronted with racial injustice in their own country seemed to have a galvanizing effect even just beyond the brutality of the images. And the result of it in the long run was, uh, in part, the passing of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which ever since has been put under indirect and sometimes direct attack uh, by a number of different politicians nowadays, uh, particularly um, on the Republican right. And, uh, and certainly the debate about voting rights and the degree to which they are being protected and respected in all 50 states is uh, certainly at the forefront of people's minds and will continue to be now that the 2024 presidential election cycle is going to be, uh, be uh, kicking into gear. So with that in mind, all of those things uh, make events like what happened in Selma 60 years ago, almost 60 years ago, even more poignant now, um, perhaps, than they have been in quite some time. But nevertheless, it's worth uh, keeping an eye on. Now, something a little bit, perhaps, more, uh, more enjoyable than these two subjects. Uh, it is Oscar time, and every time Oscar t- comes around, I remember why I love movies, and I always think of this one song when it comes up. You all know this song. Even if you're not fans... <laughs> Oh, yes, listen to that. And that is just the glory of the movies to me, the, the theme from Star Wars itself, an entire industry at this point. This week also saw the, the season three premiere of the television show, the Star Wars television show, The Mandalorian, which I'm really excited about and only slightly ashamed as a 49-year-old man to admit how excited I am about that, only slightly. But nevertheless, it is Oscar time. And I, I have to admit, I normally am much better about seeing all the Oscar Uh, candidates, a lot of the Oscar movies, before we get to this point. Uh, This year, there are 10 films nominated for Best Picture. And the only one I've seen is Top Gun Maverick. (laughs) It's the only one I have seen. And Best Picture and Top Gun Maverick honestly weren't two phrases I thought would ever get put together. But nevertheless, um, I have some work to do. In particular, um, I'm really wanting to see the new version of The All Quiet on the Western Front, uh, the Eric Maria Remarque uh, novel of the same name is one that um, has had a lasting effect on me, so I'm looking forward to seeing that that German version of that, as well as The Fablemans and Women Talking. Those are the ones that I'm the most excited about. We shall see how that goes, um, but there is something about movie storytelling that always draws me in. Good storytelling draws me in, um, especially the type that really connects to a lot of the themes that I like to talk about on this show, with history and connection between people and the degree to which we make things harder for ourselves than they need to be on a personal level, on a relational level, and on a community level. And so when, uh, when we, as we transition out of the news into talking about what today's story is going to be, 
Uh, at the top of the show, I mentioned that we're going to talk a little bit about Women's History Month, this being Women's History Month, and uh, why I think it's actually a really important uh, month to have. There are a lot of history months, uh, of course, nowadays um, for a lot of different groups that have been, up until this point, uh, underrepresented in uh, general historical accounts, in books, in textbooks, perhaps in uh, classrooms. And I think there's, there's an important role that, that these types of history months can play. Uh, and so I am a supporter of them. But I want to talk a little bit kind of more broadly about that, but at the same time, a bit more personally on, on that score. And so uh, to kick off my discussion of Women's History Month, I want to tell you why it matters to me on a, num- on a personal level. Um, before I do that, though, not too long ago, I was at an event, I was at a conference, and I was talking about history. That tends to come up when people learn that I've had a PhD and I've taught it for a lot of years and I talk about it and I've written an alternate history fiction novel based on my historical knowledge, oftentimes comes up. And um, this person said to me in kind of frustration that uh, it was really hard now with history in America that, uh, as this person put it, now that it's, quote, being, written, re- being rewritten all the time. And I've heard that before, and my response was not what this person was expecting or hoping for. I said, well, so that's actually not true. It's not being rewritten. What's happening is it's, generally speaking, it is being broadened out. The story is being given more layers. To put it from a storytelling point of view, more characters are being added to this. More storylines are being added to history. And it is up to that larger debate and discussion that really is endless to figure out where all and how all these narratives can fit together. And so when we're talking about things like what goes into high school and college textbooks, those discussions do matter. When we're talking about what gets covered in uh, college classrooms, uh, those things matter as well. To what degree can, uh, for example, in college classrooms, can professors assume general knowledge of some of the, the big elements in history and big figures in history, and then instead focus on those stories that aren't as often told. Those are debates that go on. Unfortunately, they become more acrimonious over the last few years as they've become increasingly politicized, uh, even though they've probably all been politicized on some level. But there's been a democratization, is what I would call it, a democratization of historical narratives and historical interest. Part, in part, that has to do, I suppose you could say, with social media, and the willingness of people to um, put stories out like this on social media, to debate them, to discuss them, to find people in common cause, uh, to talk about these things, that has to do with that. So it raises the prominence of those stories. It also has to do with the fact that, talking about the Edmund Pettus Bridge and things like that, at least since the 1960s, if not earlier, there have been pushes among public intellectuals, um, academic historians, and others to bring in the voices of groups that historically were not necessarily represented in standard historical accounts. And so that would be uh, different minority groups, women. There's a lot of them. And so there have been several decades of that that have been going on. So that's part of it now. And that that democratization of these stories uh, (laughs) means that, to put it in in business terms, uh, the marketplace of ideas is flooded with narratives. There are a lot of different stories out there to choose from. And because there is a, unfortunately, a politicization of this, 
uh, that comes from a lot of different directions, what ends up happening is oftentimes, far too often, at least in the visible realms of social media, the news, that type of thing, these things become combat zones where if you support one narrative, it must mean in some people's minds that you're against another or if uh, you're or vice versa. If you are for a certain narrative um, or you appreciate the importance of a certain narrative, it must mean you want to reduce the importance of another narrative. And so what ends up happening is an oversimplified, usually oversimplified version of the historical narrative on either side, but then also on how effectively to understand and communicate about history and what it means for us now. Because in the end, that's where it all leads back to, is where are we right now with these things? And what can history teach us about where we are, about where we've been, and therefore about where we're going? And while I've always said historians cannot, you know, they don't have a crystal ball, they can't read the future, one of the things historians can do is point out the things that have not worked in the past and also when larger trends have really sunk in and are going to play themselves out. And I think in terms of what we're talking about, we're talking about almost 60 years of this democratization of historical narratives, no matter the efforts of people to trim them, reduce them, ignore them by doing things like banning books in high school libraries or uh, getting rid of AP uh, U.S. history courses, despite those efforts, in the end, that ship has sailed. The democratization of these narratives is here to stay, whether people like it or not. And that just has to do with longevity. It has to do with the amount of people who know them now and the amount of people who are willing to keep talking about them. So with that in mind, when we come back from the break, I want to talk a little bit about this starting from a personal level um, with a woman who I've seen this play out for in my own life. And if you think I'm talking about my mom, you are right. Come on back and hear a story about mom when we return. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Don't ask me to talk. Don't Ask Me to Talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacey Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder, Don't Ask Me to Talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you. It is March. It is Women's History Month. And uh, I'm going to jump right into today's story, which is actually a series of stories but I always like to start these in, in one spot. And when I think about this democratization of, of historical narratives that I talked about before the break and how many different layers there are and how many different perspectives there are, I don't see that as a bad thing. It can make, uh, it can certainly make reading about it, um, talking about it, it can make it more challenging because there's so much more stuff to take in now. But to me, that's part of the beauty 
of history. That's part of its importance, is recognizing that history, if it is truly the stories being told of the past that are able to be recorded and put forward, not the complete record of the past, then the more stories, the better. I have a hard time seeing why that's a bad thing. It might make things more difficult on some level for people to pigeonhole history and make it fit the version of themselves and their country's past, their personal, their personal lives, make it the way they want them. But I don't think that's how it's supposed to be for us. I think we're supposed to have to work at this a little bit more in the, in the interest of, of self-growth and connection and creating a healthier society. So with that in mind, I, I want to talk a little bit about my mom to start off. And just to get this out of the way right here, mom, I don't normally talk about you on the show <laughs> because I know you, you haven't been as comfortable, for example, as dad has been in, having, in being mentioned on the show. However, uh, indulge me, mom because I want to talk a little bit about you, because I think of you when I talk about this. And I'm thinking about my mom today uh, for many reasons, uh, but this is one of them. And my mom, a pastor's wife uh, since she married my dad in 1967, but she's been so much more than that. And when I think back to the period of time, the 1960s, uh, I think about how, how my mom must have been then. And I've heard a number of stories from her Um, my mom has never fit the stereotypical pastor's wife narrative. And I even led with that. It just shows you the degree to which sometimes, um, women are fighting against these definitions of, from the outside, right? I literally just did that. I defined my mom first and foremost as a pastor's wife who she's married to, right? It's easy to fall into that. But my mom was a school teacher for a number of years. She was a librarian for a number of years. And uh, she loves to uh, do scrapbooking and run seminars like that uh, today in her retirement. She also was a college student in the 1960s. And she was a college student who had real problems with where the country was at the time, including things like the Vietnam War that she protested against. And she supported the civil rights movement. She supported the uh, Equal Rights Amendment push for women in the late 60s and the early 1970s. And she has always been her own person in this. And yet she's also been someone who I have seen face the weight of societal expectations on how she should be, not just as a woman, but also as a pastor's wife. And it was something that I remember being so proud of her growing up that she never took what people at church would expect her to be. The stereotypical pastor's wife is somebody who is quiet, who is dutiful to her husband, who uh, essentially follows his lead all the time, takes care of the kids, and essentially doesn't say much that is independent of that. And my mom was very aware of those pressures. And uh, she'll be the first to tell you that that type of pressure takes a toll. Now, she certainly raised my sister and I well. She certainly supported my dad. What he did, she also was the first person to voice doubts and critiques to my dad, whether he wanted to hear it or not. And I always appreciated that about her. And I'm not sure I've ever actually told her that, but I always appreciated seeing that. My mom was willing to stand up for her own sensibilities and for her own vision of things. And she had a very strong sense, still does, very strong sense of right and wrong and fairness, justice, all things that I know because of the expectations that she felt in the church world and in the societal realm 
always put pressure on her and she never could feel as comfortable expressing all those as she felt she should be able to. And I agree with her with that. All the more reason why I've always thought it amazing that she has vocalized those things as loudly and as strongly as she has. And so even before I knew all these stories about women's history and this democratization of narratives and that type of thing, I saw in my own life growing up the differences in expectations between what people in the church realm of society put on my dad and what they put on my mom. And they were very different. And yet when it comes to the story of my life, my mom's narratives and my dad's narratives were equally important, equally a part of how I was raised and how my sister was raised. And they are a part of how my sister is raising her kids and how my niece and nephew are showing up in the world. These are all things that connect together. And just by itself, the relevance, the truth, and the power of those competing narratives are evident just in my own life. And I would step out from this point and say, if any of us are really honest about that, we can take a look at our own lives and see that in how we were raised, probably in very different ways than I just articulated. But nevertheless, they exist. So if those narratives and pressures and dynamics and perspectives will exist between two people within the same family, it's not a huge stretch to say these exist everywhere. And my mom's story is worth everybody knowing as much as my dad's story, as much as my story, as much as my sister's story, my niece and nephew. All those stories have value. It's one of my fundamental principles that drives me. Everybody has stories worth hearing, worth knowing, worth telling, and worth honoring on some level. So with that in mind, let's broaden out and talk a little bit more about this. For me, from a very personal standpoint, it has always been important to leave the door open, and in some cases actively open the door, to hear perspectives from people who, for whatever reason, in whatever ways, have either not had the ability to tell their stories or have them known, their backgrounds, because perhaps they, because they've been intimidated into not speaking about them. Perhaps there's larger pressures, spoken and unspoken, that come from that. A personal reluctance, perhaps based in previous traumas. It could be a lot of things. But to me, in the interest of having the story more known, of having the larger human story more known, it's been important to me for those stories to be given access to simply be told because nothing is is really more powerful to us on some level than our own experience, where we come from, what we think about, what we've gone through, what it all means to us. It's how it's in part how we define where we stand today. And if you broaden out just from in the home, whatever that may have looked like, and then add in all the different perspectives and stories of all the people that you know, it raises a question of why we would be so concerned or so fearful in some cases that other narratives somehow, because they're known, would cancel out others. <laughs> like in so many things in history, history isn't like pie <laughs> in the sense that there's only so much to go around. There's only so many narratives to tell. It's not like that at all. All these narratives add up to is a bigger pie. More to choose from. 
and you need more people to ingest that pie. Yeah, I'm weirdly hungry. That was why I went with that example. But nevertheless, it's not as if to talk about narratives and stories from a, for example, an American slave's perspective in the middle of the 19th century, that that means somehow that there isn't room to talk about Thomas Jefferson. It also shouldn't be true the other way around. That to talk about Thomas Jefferson or George Washington or Benjamin Franklin or Abraham Lincoln even means that there isn't room to talk about the perspectives of people who were slaves. The very fact that we turn it into that says a lot more about our own personal hang-ups and our personal concerns than it does actually about the narratives themselves. And because it's Women's History Month, focusing on this, I think, from a women's perspective or women's perspectives, more accurately, is important to spend some time with. And certainly we could talk about all the different historical figures, and there are so many to choose from. But what I want to focus on instead is really how we can see these things in the present now. And the fact of the matter is, even with all the democratization of historical narratives and perspectives um, and a number of voices, for lack of a better term, being brought into the conversation, the fact is the battles that were being fought in the 60s over racial equity, gender equity, are still going on. And it's easy to bring in historical perspectives to support one side or the other or the various sides uh, in all of this, if people choose to do so. And I would ask any of us to just resist that for a minute. And instead of going there, just taking a look at the present and what that does tell us. Certainly right now, with attempts to ban books and restrict curriculum in schools, elementary schools, high schools, universities, um, Florida, of course, is the most prominent right now, uh, but it's happening in a number of different states. With that, uh, it's easy to then conclude that these things are under assault, and they are. But the fact of the matter is, those narratives are out there, as I said before, and they aren't going to go anywhere. And honestly, the best way <laughs> to make sure those narratives are still getting out there is for people to try to push them back from where they came. <laughs> That's not going to work. Instead, it would be much better to take a look at perhaps why these narratives are still so necessary. And why there is something like a Women's History Month to highlight these things. Because there is still an existing sense in a number of places in this country and elsewhere that women's history is just simply a side part of larger historical narratives. That it's just sort of a special interest topic. That it really doesn't have as much to do with the development in the United States, for example, of the United States, as the dominant sort of great, great figure in history stories, you know, big key figures like I mentioned, Lincoln, George Washington, and others, as important as they are. The assumption is that it stands off to the side for many. And it's unfortunate because what that does, and what that attitude does, is it automatically places women's, women's history in particular, but women's contributions off to the side which means not nearly on the same level as those dominant narratives. And it's unfortunate because we miss opportunities to take broader looks 
at the things that we think we know about our own history and therefore of ourselves. But if we're approaching all of this from a position of feeling defensive about who we are, where we stand, how we think our country should be, we are not allowing ourselves the opportunity to be uncomfortable <laughs> with the growth that is absolutely required for us to change or to at least to grow in a way that is more connected with ourselves, with the people that we love, and with our communities. And that's where big trends in history really begin, is on core levels. And history does show that. And the fact is, when you look at all these narratives, when you take a look at gender equity in this country and elsewhere today, it is clear there is still work to be done. It is clear in a number of different industries from a number of different directions that gender equity has not been attained. And in fact, there are efforts to suppress it. There's a lot of different stories, of course, with it. Some of them make it into the news, but the majority of them don't, of women facing this on an everyday level. There's a couple of things that come to mind really quick. That conference I mentioned earlier that I was at, where that person said, well, history's being rewritten, and I disagreed with them. At that conference, it was an aviation conference, an aerospace conference, and there were very few women there. So few women in this major part of the aviation aerospace industry, so few women, in fact, that when they were all walking the halls, they all acknowledged each other, just a quick nod or a quick glance, a quick recognition of, yes, there are far fewer of us here. And I know this because I asked a few of them if that's what it felt like. They were shocked to be asked, first of all. But second, I was right. There's an awareness in that industry. It's one reason why Airway Science for Kids does what it does, to bring more equity to an industry that needs it. And more and more studies are coming out showing that in the, both the for-profit sector and the nonprofit sector, companies and entities that embrace more gender equity become more successful, have better employee retention, better profit margins, and in that case, it's just simple math, right, in that regard. Then there's also a story, though, where this can still happen, also from the aerospace industry. Uh, back in 2016, a Delta pilot named Carlene Pettit, who I've had the, um, the fortunate experience of getting to meet, uh, was suspended by her airline, Delta Airlines, after being told that she had bipolar disorder. Now, Carlene was a very accomplished pilot, still is. An accomplished pilot, she'd written a bunch of uh, novels on and got uh, her PhD from Embry Riddle in Embry Riddle University, Aviation University in uh, airplane safety and, air, and airline safety. So she knew all this stuff. She also had raised a family in the midst of all this. And upon the encouragement of Delta's leadership at a conference, asking pilots to bring forward their concerns about safety, Carlene did exactly that and was immediately attacked for bringing up what she brought up and was given a psychological, quote-unquote, psychological evaluation uh, with a psychologist who was hired by the airline and had worked with them for a really long time, who declared that she must have bipolar disorder and his diagnosis, which he had to defend later in court and defended unsuccessfully, he said, she's done more than any woman I know, and therefore, because she's doing that much, she must be manic. 
and therefore <laughs> bipolar. Now, if you're wondering how this went, Carlene Pettit ended up winning in court eventually. And it was finally, the final step was resolved back just last month. So a six, almost seven year long process. But Delta fought through three different judicial hearings to defend their own position, trying to silence her effectively for criticizing some of their safety measures. And she was told she was never going to fly again. She was forcibly reinstated, was given a series of damages to make up for lost pay because she went years without flying. And, of course, you know, got some, all of her legal fees paid. But she is not currently talking about these things because Delta has a policy that its pilots can't be talking to the media while they are currently employed by Delta. So even with that entire experience of being a whistleblower, She's still, with flying for Delta, still can't talk about it, right? The very fact that the idea was no woman, in the experience of this psychologist, had ever done as much, that was the criteria? <laughs> it's absurd on the face of it. And yet, the effort to silence Carlene because she was a woman supposedly doing more than what most women do they treated it as a psychological abnormality rather than the fact that she might just be really damn good at being a pilot, at being a writer, at being a mom, <laughs> at being a student. Things brought into question there that clearly in that case of that psychologist, other, other men had blown the whistle. They hadn't been brought into question the same way she had. That's just one of many stories. In that regard, when we come back from the break, I'll wrap up my thoughts on this and give you some updates about where I'm at on some things here on This Show is All About You. Be right back. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I.org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids. Providing aerospace for all. Welcome back, everyone, to this show. is all about you. We're talking about Women's History Month and kind of the importance of these narratives being out there today because um, contrary to what some people like to say, that these things shouldn't matter, that, um, that history is already, already in the past, that type of thing, well, it's easy to say from the perspective of people who history hasn't kept quiet <laughs> or history hasn't acknowledged over decades or centuries. Uh, it's a fairly easy position to come from. 
And of course, I've talked about on the show before, it can become also a problem if we stay entirely enslaved to our own history, unable to move past it on a personal level, on a community level, on a national level. There are problems with that. But in the case of things like Women's History Month, I think they're still important and they will remain important as long as there continue to be battles over the very relevance of these stories to begin with. These days, it's so easy to talk about weaponization of history, and people talk about it all the time, to the point that the term weaponization doesn't even mean anything anymore. But the fact of the matter is, to me at least, the more stories that we have, the broader the picture, the broader the landscape historically, the better we can see the world around us. If that requires us to do a little more soul searching, to take a look at our own biases, known and unknown, then so be it. What do we individually and collectively really have to fear if we look at it from that standpoint? The fear that we might look at something and go, ooh, that doesn't say the best thing about me. Or wow, I didn't realize how harmful idea A, B, or C could be to myself or to somebody else. We seem to be living in an era of being afraid of self-introspection and growth if it comes from a place of difficulty, accountability, and struggle. And one of the key things I talk about this on this show as often as I can is the importance of that. It's not something that we need to be afraid of. You listen to the podcast that I co-host with my friend, Tony Santabria, Breaking Up With Our BS. We talk about this type of thing all the time. There is nothing to be afraid of if we choose not to be afraid of when it comes to difficulty, difficult feelings, difficult circumstances. Actually, those are opportunities for us to learn more about ourselves, to better connect with ourselves, to confront things from our past in our present and build better futures for ourselves. These things are all worthwhile. And so for me, when Women's History Month rolls around, I think of all the women in my life who I know who struggle with and get those same societal messages, even family messages, right, that put pressure on them as women to conform, to do things a certain way, to show up a certain way, in ways that I think other people don't, or men face at least differently and not nearly as comprehensively. That's just my opinion. But there are so many. I actually sat down and made a list. In my life alone, I know 31 women who own their own businesses and have been building them from the ground up. In my own life, I know 18 women who have pursued advanced degrees, and are now using them to help children, adults, seniors in various capacities. In my own life, I know 68 women who have raised families and have worked successful careers and been successful and been happy and have felt connected and proud of their accomplishments. In my life, I know 16 women 
who are really amazing athletes and compete regularly in circuits alongside other women and alongside men. In my life, I know 22 women who have put out books, articles, podcasts, radio shows that have put their own views, their own way of doing things out on public display. They've taken those steps to put themselves out there. The list goes on and on and on. It got to the point where I was, I started worrying I was going to leave people out. (laughs) So I didn't want to do that in this case. But my larger point is, in my own life, if I'm willing to take a look, the evidence of the value of narratives about what women experience, what they go through, their history, what they contribute, is evident. And if I'm going to downplay that or ignore that, that says so much more. It says all about me, not about them. It's extraordinary what women contribute every day. And yet we still are having debates about their value and debates about whether or not they should have a say in their own lives or over their own bodies or get equal pay in their jobs or deserve equal protection under the law. It's insane. And it has everything to do (laughs) with the personal fear that people have of confronting that reality in their own lives and what it means for them. And so I will do my part as best I can to keep putting forward why these narratives are so important and these stories are so important. So to all those women I just listed, you know who you are. Thank you for being badasses. That's all I have to say about that. Including you, Mom. Absolutely. That's right. My mom's a badass. Okay. So where am I today besides fired up? (laughs) Well, a few other things. Um, I mentioned last show that I'm in the process of beginning a, a revamp of my website and kind of pulling together all these different threads of my life. That is continuing uh, to move forward a little more slowly right now than I would like, but that just has to do with the nature of life. Um, and we move at the speed of life, right? So that's all still coming. But a couple of things I thought were worth noting this week. First one, I'm really noticing my physical age these days. And I don't mean I'm feeling old. And I actually don't mean it in a bad way, necessarily. I'm just going through this experience of some things shifting for me physically that um, that just have to do with longevity. Um, for two times in the past three weeks, I've struggled with dehydration. It happened again recently. And so I've been having to take a good look at how I hydrate myself. I used to think it was just drinking more water. Turns out if you drink too much water, that can be a problem. Um, there's, there's balances now that I'm suddenly having to pay attention to. Electrolyte balances, sodium, magnesium, potassium, all these things. So I'm finding myself learning more about these things than I ever thought I was ever really going to need to. Uh, and it came about in part because when I was working out with my personal trainer last week, uh, he noticed in the midst of the workout, wow, J.D., your flexibility does not look the way it should. You're 49 years old, but, you know, 
he had me do a couple stretches and exercises. And he says, no, he says, let's spend some time stretching. And so at the end of our session, I laid down on a mat and he did that thing where he kneeled down next to me and he pushed my leg up straight and leaned it against his shoulder. <laughs> and he says to me, he goes, JD, he says, I could play banjo with your, <laughs> with your hamstrings. This is not good. And so he spent 15 minutes showing me these stretches on how I could loosen up, particularly in my legs, but also in my chest and my, my hips and in my arms. And in just a short 15 minutes, I did these stretches with him. And when I stood up again, I had one of those moments that's sort of, sort of a larger metaphor for life. I didn't realize how tight my body had felt until I no longer felt tight. I didn't even know how bad I felt until I felt better. And so it was this huge moment. And I said, so how often do I need to do this? He says, every day. He just looked at me like, what kind of question is that? You do it every single day. Add to that, that last week I, I have been having an implant put into one of my front teeth. And it's been this long process, right? The tooth has been gone. They put in the bone graft about a year ago. It's healed. I'm doing these Invisalign trays to straighten my teeth up top and bottom. Well, I finally had the post put in this past week. So I had to numb up my face again. And of course, you get those visions like you get when you're at the dentist. You see the big drill bit come in and it seems longer than what will fit in your mouth, you know, that kind of thing. But I had the interesting sensation of, you know, obviously under Novocaine, of the dentist working on things. And then he socket wrenched something into my face. I don't even know what it's called. It's the, the, the post for it. But he was literally using a socket wrench on my face. And I remember sitting there thinking, I never thought I would live to have an experience where a socket wrench was pushing something into my face. Isn't this really interesting? And it was. It wasn't exactly comfortable, but it's there now. And so, you know, that is just another indicator of, of that. Um, and for me, these are all things that are just interesting to notice. I'm not in a panic state about any of them. What I am noticing, however, though, is that my body is changing. It is getting older. I'm taking better care of it than I ever have before. Uh, which feels really good, both in my, ex in my exercise, in my diet, in my sleep, better than ever before. And yet, it's still been, you know, the operating system has been current for 49 years, going on 50. It's going to have some glitches. It's going to have some bugs. It's going to need some updates. And so I've just been aware of that this week, and it's been, it's been interesting. Um, some other things that I've been doing, I've been de developing some new avenues and clearing paths, both literally and figuratively. Um, no big reveal yet, but on the writing front, my website revamp will be a part of this, but there's some other things that just kind of arrived. Friends, you know, sent me articles and, and, uh, suggested ideas that have been coalescing together into something that feels like very tangible, very real. So I've started spending some time juggling my time priorities. Like, where am I spending my time? I'm going to need more time to do some writing. And I'm finding that I need to start making adjustments. It might be getting up a little bit earlier. Uh, like I did when I was writing my book and, and writing first thing in the morning before the day really gets started. Might be some other things. But I also, you know, to, to pay for some of these things, I've been looking for other avenues, uh, financial streams uh, to bring them in. And so one of the small things that I've started done is going through all my stuff, all my junk in my garage and in my, in my house and getting rid of them. In some case, selling them. I'm, I've even taken the, a step that I never thought I would ever take and to all my historian friends, brace yourselves, this is going to be painful. I've been selling off my books, <laughs> my history books. Uh, not all of them, 
but I'm starting to get very selective in the ones that I'm keeping and the ones that I am getting rid of. In part, yes, it brings in a little bit of money that I can stock and put into new endeavors, but it also clears literal space. And for me, clearing literal space helps me clear out emotional and intellectual space. Instead of feeling literally crowded with everything I have around me, reducing it out is paying off. And maybe I'm a little new to that game. Like, does this bring you joy? But nevertheless, it is happening. And so that's been both liberating and a bit painful <laughs> in some cases of uh, getting rid of those things. And so oh, it's just more steps in the direction that I am headed. And I've said before on this show that I'm not doing anything that I don't enjoy. And that by itself feels wonderful. And by that, I mean all the big things. There's lots of things I do I don't enjoy, like paying my bills, but I do it. (laughs) But nevertheless, in the big things, I'm really enjoying where I am in life, and I'm enjoying these steps. But there's some decisions to be made coming up in what I'm going to be spending my time and my money on, and how quickly do I want to make some of these changes. So stay tuned on that, and I'll have more to share um, as time goes by. So that's where I'm at with those things. But I'm also really excited about it, and I'm really excited that I got the chance to spend this time with you on this episode of This Show is All About You. Make sure you check out my website, wordsbyjdk.com, and stay tuned for more announcements about that as soon as possible. You can get uh, previous episodes of this show as well as original writing contents, uh, short stories, poems, essays, and the like there. Go ahead and take a look. Tell me what you think. You can also contact me directly from there if you have any questions And remember, if you missed any of this episode or any episodes of this show is all about you, you can find uh, this as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So thank you for searching it out, uh, for subscribing, leaving me a review, and sharing with your friends. I really appreciate it. My larger thank yous for the week, as always. This show is all about you. is produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. Eric Ryder is my in-studio producer, editor, and mix master. Thanks, Eric. The show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. Check them out at airside.org. And the original theme music is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. Special thanks for contributing to this episode and all that went well for me this week has to go to Julia Cannell, Tawny and Dave Santabria, Bruce and Cindy Bowler, John Sefton, Teresa Baker, Kathy Lewis, Emily McFetridge, Troy Hunter, Ashley Kniebel, Ann Foster, Nancy Johnson, Stacey Heller, Katie Beck, and Eric Crema. Uh, some special thanks. Thanks to nature for doing what you do and making it light again in the Northwest. As you can tell, I'm one of those people that's very excited. Thanks also to whoever invented this amazing thing, pork panko. Panko, but made of pork rinds. It's a low-carb option, so literally you could make pork chops with pork coating. It is genius. It is tasty. Um, I'm not sure how advisable it is, but I'm willing to take a shot at it. So thank you to whoever invented that because it's glorious. Seriously, it's a miracle. Uh, Thanks also to Mel Brooks, the director. For the movies that he made once upon a time, I stumbled onto History of the World Part 1 the other day, fell down the rabbit hole, and forgot how much I loved those movies growing up. A lot of movies you wouldn't be able to make today, but nevertheless, um, some pretty funny stuff. And for you listeners, thank you. I couldn't do this for you without you. And finally, as a way to send you off into the rest of your week, let's end with this original haiku. Why can't we accept just how powerful our hearts are over our minds? Chins up, everyone. 